We've crossed the halfway point for this book, both in terms of page count and in terms of narrators. We're leaving the old South, old folk behind, going to the next generation to find out what they have to say. Coming up. On the Codex Cantina. Welcome to the Codex Cantina. I am Una. And I am Absalom Crypto. And we've gotten through our Rosa and Mr. Compson chapters. We got suddenly Mr. Faulkner randomly appearing here at the end of the Rosa. <laughs> like you're sitting there reading this like italics 30 page narration of Rosa. And then all of a sudden, like Mr. Faulkner just pulls up to you at a bar and is just like, hey, so um, yeah, also this and just omnisciently narrates like a paragraph. Yeah, you hate italics. This is how history works you don't have the facts presented to you directly you've got a couple people coming to you with like yeah i think this is what happened and you have to kind of reconcile between them yeah this is where you're taking pieces of the puzzle and trying to form a picture when you don't have a picture to look at and you don't have all the puzzle pieces to begin with i got one little interesting quote here where some people have commented like well rosa wouldn't just talk for two hours straight without taking a breath. Like, this isn't how Rosa talks. This is unrealistic. I got a quote from Pierre Michon. He says, It is literature itself that speaks. Well, we've talked about before that in literature, there are things that are left out for reasons. It's also rare for someone to talk for two hours and not have the other person go, Mm-hmm, yep, okay. Like, just straight Rosa talking. Yeah. It was Sure. Today, we're going to be covering some of the plot highlights. We won't do the usual plot complete breakdown because this is kind of like a reimagining, not a whole bunch of new information. Yep, we're going to do good. some quick narrator context, and then we're going to go into our, our analysis where we're going to continue the allegory of the South, Charles as a Christ-like figure, some more Greek stuff, including uh, Faces and Cerberus. So in terms of the plot points that I want to hit on, we get a lot more of Rosa right after Charles's uh, murder, where we see she's a little bit more racist towards... Clyde than we've traditionally seen. We see she's more open to Suppen and almost waiting for him to come back along with several other people before she's outraged by something that Suppen does. So it's not that she hated him her whole life, I think is what that's kind of bringing out. We get a lot more information about Charles Jr. I'm going to call him that because I don't know how to pronounce his whole name. And basically how he had a kid, uh, Jim Bond, and their interactions with the town upon arriving basically uh, in terms of being arrested general compson throwing money at him to go away him coming back with a wife renting a cabin from judith raising raising a family there so that's kind of the highlights of what you get from the plot that's new okay yeah all right so let's go into some quick narrator context because you have to kind of look at this chapter by chapter if you just do a review at the end you will never be able to do service to this book you asked me when we were reading the Reavers, why does Faulkner constantly repeat himself? Like, he'll have sentences that are very similar, phrased differently, or bookend things. And I think this book is finally answering that in a way better than I could articulate. But it's showing you how you can present the same thing from different angles and kind of have different stories or takeaways or knowledge of it. This is literally how history is written. History doesn't have a stenographer typically at each event. They're written down after the fact, made up of people's stories that may or may not have even been there. They may be conjecturing based on evidence what has happened. And there can be differences kind of between maybe some evidence and maybe some things that other people say are present on something. Like this is literally a book that is, one of the themes of it is, is the past. But I, I would argue that this is how history 
works. No, I would agree. That's one of the things I try to teach my students at the beginning is the idea of historical bias and not having the entire story and that the old saying is true, the winners write history. So we've covered it before. We've talked about it in Late Encounter with the Enemy and such, but this book is the grand master daddy of demonstrating this, and, and we're seeing it as he's going through that. So quickly, Rosa and Sutpin's relationship. At first, Sutpin's presented as this ogre. He's horrible. Nobody could possibly like him. Mr. Compson comes along. And like, well, you know, he's not the best guy. And then you see the town throwing stuff at him. And you're like, oh, okay, I probably don't have the whole story here. And then you have come back to Rosa again where you realize, well, she didn't always hate him. It was it was maybe after he, he got engaged to her and something happened that kind of infuriated her. You see this flipping back and forth of truth. And this chapter is really important, too, for the narration, too, of why Rosa was waiting for him. We'll get into that in the allegory. And in terms of uh, Sutpen's offspring... It's finally here in this chapter. You caught it because we talked about it. Where we finally have learned that Charles Bond is Sut Penn's long lost boy. I mean, that might be one of the most important pieces of evidence information that you need for the story for the entire book. And I went back and I found the line. And you said you don't know why Rosa hates Sut Penn still. Is that correct? Yeah, I still haven't quite figured that out yet. Okay. Have I missed something? Should I know that? It's in this chapter. Ah, oh, dang it. It's actually right by the part where they kind of reveal that Bon is the long lost child. But they're going to go more into that in the next chapter. They were very brief. If you missed it, feel free to go back and reread it. It is there. I was so zoned in on that. And I was like looking at it microscopic instead of macroscopic that I missed kind of the bigger picture of that detail. While I was zoomed in on the idea that Charles is his son, and I was like, oh, that's why they can't marry. It was literally the sentence before, so I can easily see how you could have missed this. And it's not clear, right? Like, in the same way that the past in history isn't clear, you get fragments of truth, fragments of the past to try to understand it. That's the way information is constantly repeated and represented. And it, this information is represented in the next chapter, chapter seven. We get a little bit more of the background of Sutpen and stuff like that. Um, and I don't think it's going to impact the narrative, but those are here in chapter six. I can tell you that. So let's jump into our analysis. Let's talk about the old self allegory. I believe now being six chapters in, Mr. Crypto, you can kind of help start taking this away. So first of all, let me give you one that you may not know. Do you know who Colonel Sartoris is? Nope. He's one of like I the did. main founding figures of Jefferson. So he's a fictional oh, okay. character completely. But he's one of the guys that kind of started Jefferson, I believe. I still have kind of an empty spot in my Faulkner, Yakna Patafi universe. I have, we have yet to get to those books, but he's like the main guy that started it. Okay. Now okay. you'll notice in these chapters, Sutpen was voted to replace him during the war. So this oh. is that idea, the guy that kind of brought slavery into the South because slavery didn't start in the South, right? It was brought into the South later. And men like Sutpen, the ones that brought slavery, are the ones that were voted into power to kind of start off the allegory here. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's jump into the house rotting. Things are falling apart. There's a quote here. There was even one step, one plank, rotted, free and tilting beneath the foot. If you've been following along from our Go Down Moses, Faulkner uses this exact same technique when he's talking about the South being presented as beautiful, as camaraderie, as family values, the rotting floorboard represents that there's something wrong, which is slavery in the South that needs to be fixed. Here he hits you a lot more on, on the head with it, where 
as the war is being fought, you'll notice the South falls apart here. Yeah, and the house is falling apart. And I really like the idea of the them saying it was haunted, like they were haunted by the issue of slavery this whole time. Like, nobody wanted to address that there was something wrong, but there's always been something deeper wrong. All right, so some people may be a little bit confused about Clyde sticking around after the Civil War as well as Rosa. Talk to us about that. So a lot of them weren't treated horribly like it is depicted sometimes. Now, don't get me wrong. Slavery is horrible. There were things that were awful to done to these people, horrible atrocities, the worst of the worst of the worst. But some of the people, even though they were slaves, they wanted to stay. It's the only life that they knew. It's the only family that they knew. And I think Clyde kind of represents that to where uh, she had a place and she had a family and she had a purpose and she's able to stay and accomplish those things uh, you know, and, and live her life uh, not a lot different than what it was before. And for a lot of times, the slaves, it was scary. I mean, this is a new adventure for them, right? They they don't know what they're capable of doing. And so it was it was tough for a lot of them to imagine not having those chains because you get used to a routine and you get used to how your life is. And they themselves started to believe that they were lesser than in some cases. Not all again, but in, in some cases they did. And I think that maybe she kind of represents that. Okay, so Sutpin comes back. Talk to me about uh, Reconstruction and the return to normalcy. So this idea of returning to normalcy is to get back to the way things were before the Civil War. The problem is, though, that they can't, right? Slavery has been abolished. They can't go back to the way that they were but they can get as close as possible. So through Jim Crow laws and through uh, certain restrictions in the South, they're able to put the, the former slaves into indentured servitude, basically, where they give them loans and they keep them restricted to the land by sharecropping. And they try to get things back to way that they were before, uh, but that's just not possible anymore. So one of the other major things, of course, is the carpetbaggers. And these were Northerners that are coming down. And the South always viewed the North as trying to take advantage of them. And this is that literally incarnate where these Northerners are coming down to take advantage of the South in their weakened, decrepit state. And I, I think that you can see that represented here in the story as people trying to take advantage of them. And you, you see that things are falling apart for the South and things are falling apart at the 100. Sutton has to open up a general store and do things that maybe they feel are beneath them in this case. And they resent the North for doing that to them. And that's the, the, the carpetbaggers. And then the other thing of kind of that returning to normalcy or a new normal is the person I think represents this best is um, Wash Jones, right? So he's the mm -hmm. the, the, the mm -hmm. poor white person that represents uh, the the poor working white class of the South, who a lot of times the only thing that they had that they felt that it made them better than a slave or a black person was that they were free. And they they held that over blacks and that I'm not a slave, so I'm superior. It doesn't matter that we do the same job. It doesn't matter that we make the same money. It doesn't matter that I can read or I wear the same clothes. I'm better than you because I'm not a slave and I'm not black. And I think Wash Jones kind of represents that. What did we do now? Because I don't have anything to hold over these people because we're seen as equals now. And I don't have more money. I don't have more status or clout or power or anything. 
were the same, and that was hard for a lot of people in the South to uh, grasp or wrap their head around. I think it's interesting, too, how Sutpen tries to use the poor white class in the absence of his slaves that ran away, and it's the poor white class that kind of ended up killing him, killing the, the usage of slavery, killing the idea of men like Sutpen that, that destroyed the South. I think that's kind of interesting the way that he looped that around too. Sure, yeah. The last thing we need to talk about too, I think, at least for right now for a brief discussion perspective, is uh, General Compson gives money to Charles Jr. and tells him to go away. This is the idea of how the white class used money to kind of try to buy off their grief, to throw money at the problem and make themselves feel better about it rather than actually thinking the money would help the problem or that the money uh, was real restitution for, for the crimes and sins that they committed. Yeah, I think this is a representation of Reconstruction where the North just thought they could throw money at the problem by sending down millions and millions of dollars to try to rebuild the South and just say, hey, we're sorry that we you know destroyed all of your farms and we destroyed all your roads and bridges and railroad tracks and everything but we're going to be okay. We're going to fix it. And one thing that happens is that there are swindlers that steal all of that money. And a lot of it doesn't get put back into the infrastructure of of the South and that they, they can't buy their way out of these problems. And I think that's a great representation of that idea of money and reconstruction uh, post-Civil War. All right, let's move on to the next talking point, And that is Charles Bond as a Christ-like figure, which we haven't really uh, touched upon yet. All right, so let's talk about Bible in a nutshell, like super, super biggest nutshell the Bible's ever been put in, but like in <laughs> Catholic Christianity word, if you will, God creates the world, right? God gives world laws, man breaks laws <laughs> repeatedly. <laughs> God punishes God, man. God punishes man, but God sends his son, Jesus, and himself. his son, his, and his son, Jesus and himself. Perfect man, perfect God, right? Yep. To die for the sins of man at the age of 33. And and there's going to be an apocalypse eventually. Jesus come back, save the people, and everybody else gets to rot here on earth. All right, so <laughs> Sutpen, you'll notice that they refer to him twice now with a th arriving with a thunderclap. They give him the Greek mask. He's the god of this new world where when he arrived, they say men like Sutpen created the South. And he said, be Sutpen's hundred. Just like in Genesis, the beginning of the world, God creates the world. Sutpen creates the South. Yeah, Sutpen is our Messiah, right? Mm -hmm. Now, Sutpen has his son, Charles Bond, that we finally learned is his son in this chapter, chapter six. And who dies? Oh. Forsakes his son, right? And I think it's interesting that you'll notice very specifically both times Charles Bond where he meets his his long lost family is on Christmas Day, aka Jesus's birthday. His his family begins, his new family begins on Christ's birthday. Yeah, many subtle nods here to make that I think very obvious. I mean it it's subtle, but I think it's like okay, come on, this is obvious. Well, they constantly use the word like flesh and blood. Not just from like a familial standpoint, but that's from a biblical standpoint, when you take communion and, and you drink the wine, the flesh and the blood of, of God, if you will, right? Yeah, exactly. We find out in this chapter from his grave that he died at age 33, the same day Jesus died. At the same age. The Bible. Yeah. yeah. So I wanted to bring this up because this is going to be also important as you go into the next chapters 7 and 8. I want you guys to pay attention to the how often they use the word bo uh, body and flesh, like we talked about, but also the word Christ. Shreve is going to, you know, say it when they're talking. Uh, 
You'll notice actually there's even uh, when when you can, when you're writing about God and you're using the pronoun he, for example, typically you're supposed to capitalize, capitalize the H, H. Even if, yep. even if it's in the middle of a sentence, right, which you wouldn't normally do. It's interesting when there's a couple of sections where when they're talking about the Christmas here, where Pen is arguing with with uh, Charles to drive it down home even further. Randomly in the middle of a sentence, when they use the pronouns to describe Pen and Charles, they will capitalize those pronouns as well, just like as if they were the gods of the story. Yeah, I thought that was odd until we got into the religious stuff. I was I was like, that is that a typo? And like with the italics and stuff like that, all the time, I'm, uh, because I'm you know, a history teacher and I grade so many essays, I'm always looking for that. I'm not a grammar Nazi, but uh, I, I do notice those things just on instinct from reading so many essays and grading so many essays. I see those and I think, huh, what does that mean? And then it always gets me thinking a little bit further. So it, it's good. I mean, it's, he's an amazing writer. You have to give him that. Well, and here's this was actually a talking point for last week that I couldn't bring up yet. And I slipped, if you didn't notice, when I was talking about um, when I first started talking about Charles and Henry. I immediately jumped to incestuous relationship, but I hadn't brought Judith up yet. I quickly brought Judith up to kind of cover it up because I knew Charles was the brother, but you didn't know that at the time. Yeah, I missed that. It was a mistake, but I quickly covered it up because I quickly jumped to Judith afterwards. But here's a talking point about that is that their relationship, I I mentioned Narcissus briefly from like an Ovid metamorphosis perspective, and that's, yeah. I think, brought up several times in those paragraphs, too, that you're supposed to be thinking that. But there's also a good parallel with um, Jonathan and David in the Bible. Yeah, so this is very obvious where we had talked about before that uh, the idea of having a homosexual relationship, right, that they were gay in the Bible. And that's what I thought the big secret was, not the incestual thing, that they they were uh, lovers, right? I, I totally thought they were going to be lovers, and uh, I, w- I was glad that I was surprised. Depending on who you talk to, some push the undertones harder while others place like a harder platonic relationship on that. I-, I can't speak Latin. I can't translate it. But I think it's meant to be kind of like that ambiguous play between these two characters and the Bible characters. I was definitely picking up with the, the homosexual vibes through the early part of the book. But when it hits you over the head with Charles's lineage, I... I think you got to latch onto that as more of an important point than the idea of them being lovers. And they may be, but I think that that was something to distract you until you got to this part of the story, in my opinion. Well, Charles's aura is something that immediately was magnetic to Henry, right? He switched majors to law, even in school. Didn't know who this guy was, but was immediately just like, come home with me, meet my sister, let me hit on my sister for you, honey. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but even Rosa, she, we learn in chapter five, she's never seen him before, not even visually seen Charles Bond before. And yeah. she starts to have these like erotic feelings stirring up in her over Charles marrying Judith. Like... In the same way that Henry is living the perfect incestual love through his sister, Rosa's having feelings stirred up in her too, where she's the spinster to Rick right now, right? She wants to get married, I think, and is so excited about Judith getting married that she starts to have these emotions drawn up, just having Charles be near as well. I think there's a lot of different directions we could go with that. I know that 
time period specific, right? There were not as many interactions with people. They sometimes met two or three times. They sent letters. You asked permission to get married from the father, and you got married. Uh, I mean, there wasn't this dating and uh, the going out on dates for many times and then living together and getting married. It's like you courted through letters, uh, correspondence that way, asked for permission and got married. So I, I, I don't know. that. So, okay, let's go, let's go into our last talking point, which is kind of like the Greek comparisons. One of the ones I wanted to talk about is faces. So we've mentioned before the Greek mask, right? You, you don't see Sutpin's face. You see his beard with some teeth underneath it and the way that he just he just comes into the scene and it just instantly pulls that emotion out of your characters in the same way that a Greek uh, tragedy mask immediately brought fear out of the audience when they saw it because it'd be such a striking image. You'll notice that the faces are described very in- very intensely throughout this piece. Uh, every character that's introduced, even the minor characters, have like some descriptions of their faces. Um, for example, Charles Jr., when he comes back with his wife. The first time we're meeting this this woman, and and Faulkner has a chance to make an impact here. <laughs> and boy, do, boy, does he. He no. drops some serious racial slurs here. So I'm going to read the quote here, and it's it's with intent, I think, of pulling these emotions out of you. It's cold black, an ape-like woman, and an authentic wedding license. Ouch. Ouch. Yeah, really racist, right? Yeah, super racist. <laughs> and there's a couple other times where he will refer to, I think it's either ape or gorilla references to them. And that's a really harsh way to describe people. And that's what, that's, that's a, that's an exclamation point, I think, for Faulkner is describing someone's face. Because you had Clyde when Rosa goes over there and they described her as having a Sutpin like face, right? They didn't say it was Clyde. It was the not Sutpin face, I believe is what they said, where it was a coffee-colored skin color. It was Sutpin enough to grab a couple of quotes from that section. But the way that Faulkner is describing these faces is he's specifically trying to pull an emotion out of you as a reader rather than like, what do I want this character to look like? Like He doesn't actually want to... physically describe her short stout face he wants to pull the the racism card out of you where the whole town's shocked how black his wife is he wants you to see the familial familial lineage of clyde when you walk into the house of wow she is so much like Suppin. and he uses those descriptions to just rip these emotions out of you as a reader it's absolutely incredible the way that he uses faces in this. Yeah, they're not just descriptive. They're not just adjectives for the sake of knowing what your character looks like so you can envision something in your head. I think that not only does this do a great job of doing a Greek comparison, but it takes us back to our Southern allegory as well of these people represent the face of the South and the idea of whites and black and and races and racism. If you are of this class and race, you are this way according to Faulkner, right? Yeah, he's definitely putting you in a, a in a box and saying, this is it. Now, here's another interesting. So Rosa is our muse. And uh, I grabbed this quote about Charles, where she says, Miss Rosa never saw him. This was a picture, an image. So the same way that you see muses or the, the storytellers or the artists behind vases and plates draw the characters on that, In the same way that we talked about earlier in terms of history, 
Rosa in this situation is drawing the faces for you as the reader, as the listener in this situation. She's trying to paint the image of what these characters are supposed to be. She's putting the masks on these characters, right? We talked about Faulkner putting it on, but he's having Rosa put a specific mask on Clyde, right? A different narrator coming in and being like, oh, hey, Clyde, like <laughs> it could be totally different. But, but Rosa acting as a muse is taking and painting a mask of how these people are or should be according to their class and race and puts that mask on the character and that's how we then emotionally are drawn out as the as the reader to react to these characters this is amazing writing oh definitely definitely i also think that it it is very circular here that it takes us back to our point of this being history right because these masks have what we call historical distortion because they're not true representations. They're what she thinks they are from like Mm -hmm. the quotes that you said. They might not be the truth, but it's the truth she thinks of what the South is or what these people should represent. Like in a Greek tragedy, you have that, uh, that norm and that you're supposed to be these things. And I think that she is, or Faulkner is writing her to give us this misinformation. I love the way he does it. Now, here's another point um, in terms of some of the Greek references. So remember when Ellen passed away, the butterfly, the ephemeral butterfly that's moving on, her soul's moving on. They described her as crossing, I think it was the Styx River, right? The river that leads to Hades in Greek mythology. Yep. Do you know who guards the Styx River? Cerebus. Cerebus. Dog. Yes. And here I, I, is... I want to do that for Harry Potter. I don't know why. <laughs> Well, to be fair, in Harry Potter, who just came back from the dead right as they passed the Cerberus? Oh yeah, Voldemort. Voldemort. <laughs> like that's when they were. That's when they revealed yeah. him coming back. So that's a literature technique, right? So it's often here, used. Yeah. Here is Charles Bond just died, right? Being sent to hell rather than meeting him this way for the first time, which would taint her romantic image of him. She's Cerberus that protects the other side ellen's not coming back you're not going to change your view of charles bond she's standing guard between hades and then hell and the real life which is 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 interesting because if you just listen to the quote he bettered choosing who created in his own image the cold cerberus of his private hell it gives me tingles (laughs) ellen died because of that christmas Suppin killed her killed her family through the destruction of the previous son, Charles, being revealed. And who just died in the scene? Charles and Ellen, both killed by Sutpen's legacy or his um his sins. They died for the sins of someone else, Sutpen aka yeah, sins of the father. And she's in Clyde, the one left is the Cerberus, the one guarding Rosa from crossing over to that. Incredible incredible writing it really is and it takes it back to again our start where the idea that Sudpen is our christ-like god-like figure and god gave us free will the ability to sin and he's giving them the sin right yeah yeah no that's true that's true all right guys let's wrap this up this is the end of our discussion on five and six next week we're actually just doing one chapter because it's a doozy it's a long one but we're going to get some <laughs> We're going to get some good information here. And uh, this time, I promise you, you will pick up on why 
Rosa hates set pin finally. It was revealed here, and extra points for you that caught it, though. So tune in next week where we'll do Chapter 7, and then we'll have one more section after that to wrap up Absalom Absalom by William Faulkner. Please subscribe to follow us along this journey. Una out. Peace.